Good evening, everyone. Tonight's second Bible reading will be from Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be starting from verse 11 and we'll read until chapter 3, verse 13. You can find this in the Pew Bibles on page 1134 or you can follow along on the screen behind me. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and are called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together, to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I become a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Well, good evening and 
Happy Mother's Day um, to our mothers here tonight and hopefully you are able to make your own mothers feel uh, special this, this day. Uh, I was pretty impressed with my own kids. They made pancakes for Yvonne this morning, even though it was out of a packet mix, which is what I normally do anyway. I was pretty impressed. Um, so happy Mother's Day. Well, we're going to have a look at this wonderful passage from Ephesians 2 and 3. If you are new to our church, um, a way that would help you follow on in the sermon is to have a look at the outline, which is on the inside of the newsletter. So hopefully that will be useful for you. And the other way is to keep your Bibles open. We will, in fact, work through most of the verses in, these, uh, in this passage. So that will be helpful. We want to always be a church sitting under the Word of God. So we want to be looking with our eyes, hearing with our ears what God is teaching us. Well, let's pray and then we'll have a look at this passage. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you continue to speak to us, your church, your people. You speak to us truths which we need to hear and believe and to put into practice. And we pray that that might be so this evening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the last few weeks, we've been working through the series on the church. The church, God's purpose and design. Now, if you remember, on our first week, when we considered the church God cause, we got to see inside the purposes of God, the eternal purposes from eternity past to eternity future. We got to see that the church itself is God's idea, not our idea. And so as we meet each week, as the people of God, as the church, this is God's idea, it is not ours. And then last week, when we considered the church God loves, we got to see inside the heart of God that God would love dead, fallen sinners. It's extraordinary, but God does. We are loved by God. And today our topic is the church God unites. And as we reflect on this topic, we get to see inside the design of God for his church. And so this morning, as we think about this, the church God unites, I want us all to just reflect on our own church family. Us here this evening, those in the morning, many of us would um, uh, sometimes visit the morning or meet those in the morning through our growth groups or camps. If you look at our church, what we see here is really a wonderful glimpse of God's marvelous design for his church. Because as you reflect and see all that gather each week, we are all so diverse in so many different ways, so different in so many different ways, but yet united. There is unity. You see, we're so different in so many different ways, aren't we? Different in our hobbies, different in our interests, different in our jobs, different in our status, our stage of life, our age. We've got newborns all the way to those in their 90s. The oldest member of our church is 97 years old. That is pretty old. And so we've got everyone in between, every generation, every decade represented. We've got different sense of fashion as well. Some good, some better than others. We are all different in so many different ways. Our culture is different. Now I did a count of the culture, the different cultures represented in our church, both morning and evening, and I counted over 20 different cultures. I'll go through the list, and you let me know if I'm missing any. We've got Welsh people, Germans, Chinese, 
Vietnamese, Cambodian, Indonesian, Scottish, cannot forget the Scots, uh, English, Australians, Fijians, Indians, Taiwanese, Malaysians, Singaporeans, South Africans, Sudanese, Egyptians, Italians, Koreans, Dutch, Sri Lankan, Iranians, Filipinos. Have I missed any? Well, this morning at the door, I was told that I missed one. This tall guy came up to me and said, you missed one. And I said, oh no, I forgot the Americans. So here's an American guy. So about 24 different cultures represented in our church family. Now, as you think about that, isn't that just wonderful? So marvelous, so beautiful, because if you think about it, where in the world would you get people so different, so diverse, but yet gather and call each other brothers and sisters in Christ? Where, where do you get that? Where do you get such a community? Where would you get a group so different, but yet claim to belong to the same family of God? Where in the world would you get that? Intent always on loving each other, on caring, on supporting one another. Where do you get that? You see, well, it is the church God unites. It is by God's design. The fact that we are meeting tonight, so different, but united, this is by God's design. It is for us. But what we may not always realize is that the church did not start out this way, so diverse. It did not begin this way. You see, the wonderful covenant promises of God in our first reading to Abraham, they were first for people not like you or me. Not, not uh, the, the Chinese or the Germans or the Scottish or the Australians. None of us because we are called Gentiles in the Bible. The promises of God we see in the Bible were first for the Jewish people. The disciples were Jewish. The early church, they were Jewish. And so Christianity, which we now are part of, it was not first for us. And so when people speak of Christianity being a Western religion, it was not a Western religion. It came from the Jews. It started off Jewish. And so how is it then? That if it began Jewish, how is it that the church now looks like this? So different, so diverse, with so many different cultures. Well, it is because it is the church God unites by God's eternal design, determined right from the very beginning. And it's worth remembering this, and this is what Paul points out in our passage. So keep your Bibles open, we'll have a look at it. Paul reminds us here in this passage that the wonderful promises that we might today be counted amongst the people of God, that we can call God Father, they were first for the Jews. You see, it was the Jewish people who were the ones who received the laws. They were the ones who had the temple worship, the sacrifices. They were the ones who had the patriarchs. They were the ones who were the ancestors of Jesus Christ himself. We are the Gentiles. It was not first for us. And historically, there was great hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews had a much held Gentiles at much contempt. There was a huge barrier between them, a barrier of hostility. Even the way the temple was constructed and designed, it was to show the Gentile world, you, 
you're not one of us. And so here's a diagram of the temple, Herod's temple. There's the temple there. The temple was constructed on an elevation. And on that same elevation was the courts of the priest, the men and the women. They were on the same level. But then you go down a few steps, five steps, there's a wall, and then another 14 steps, and there was another thicker wall, a wall of about one and a half meters thick, a huge barrier. It was to, to warn the Gentiles, you do not really belong to us. In fact, on this barrier was a warning sign in both Greek and Latin that read, trespasses will be executed. Not fined, but executed. And so there was this great hostility between Jew and Gentile, this huge contempt for the Gentiles. And that's why Paul said what he says in verses 11 and 12. Have a look with me. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and caught uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. And so Gentiles alienated from God. You are far away. We, are, we were meant to be far away. We were in fact far away. It's been described that Gentiles are Christless, stateless, Friendless, hopeless, and godless. And so the fact that we can meet together like this today, this Sunday, it is extraordinary. It is an unbelievable privilege we have today. And how was that possible? Oh, it only became possible because of the blood of Jesus Christ. It cost Jesus Christ his life. His blood was shed to wash us clean, us who were far away, to make us new, to draw us near. Not the blood of bulls and goats like in temple worship, but the blood of the Son of God himself. You see that in verse 13. What we once were, but verse 13, but now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. And so it is the church God unites. We have this experience today. We can meet today because it is the church God unites by the blood of Christ. And it's also for the peace of mankind. So that that huge barrier between Jew and Gentile that was taken away, destroyed by Jesus himself. Two people becoming one and belonging to God. Now there is peace when once there was hostility. And this hostility was in fact really, it was real. It, it was absolute. This barrier was, was, was a genuine barrier. They would not associate, the Jews would not associate with the Gentiles. It's been described by, by one theologian this way. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish, married a, a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent to death. Just imagine that. If you choose to marry someone of a different culture, different race, 
Your parents will say, I'll have none of that, and in fact, you are dead to me. That was how serious it was. So much contempt. But what happened because of Christ? There is peace. There is now peace. Look at verses 14 to 15. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. Jesus destroyed it. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. So picture that peace between two kingdoms, two peoples, two cultures. Picture here something like the Berlin War, which divided West Germany from East Germany. It was during the Cold War, separated families, separated friends, divided the nation. And it was terrible. They couldn't cross over. They couldn't meet. They couldn't do anything. But when the war was smashed and torn down in 1989, it established peace. Now the two became one, the divided nation, now united. And on that very weekend, two million East Berlin Germans visited West Berlin to celebrate. And so there, was hug. there were hugs and embracing. Two people becoming one. There was peace. But now think about that on a spiritual level. Not just peace, but brothers and sisters. But the reconciliation that Jesus brought about was not just between people and people, but people and God. Look at verse 16. And in this, in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came to preach to you who were far away, that is the Gentiles, and peace to those of you who were near, that is the Jews. You see, both Jew and Gentile, both needed the gospel because they both needed a saviour. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. And that is why today, Christians, we can call God Father by the Spirit. That is why we can say that we belong to the same family of God. The, the church all around the world, one big family. And so it is the church God unites by the blood of Christ for the peace of mankind and of course to be the people of God a new humanity now citizens of heaven you were once not a citizen a foreigner far away alienated but now a citizen of heaven I mean you can just reflect on if you're an Australian citizen we value our passport it, it weighs a lot it means a lot it's worth a lot but how do you put a, a value, a worth, on being a citizen of heaven? It is, it is beyond anything we can buy. We're also members of God's household, faith in the same Saviour. And so that's what we see, verses 19 to 20 now. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. You see, we, we do not belong, but now we do built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, that is, the teachings of Scripture, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, that is, the most important stone, the stone that, that keeps the building straight, the stone that connects the two walls, so that now the church 
the gathered people of God throughout the world, every time we gather, so diverse, so different, but yet so united, so that even now the church can be described as the spiritual temple of God. It is amazing, marvelous, wonderful. The church, the people of God gathered, can be described as the temple of God, for God now dwells not in a physical building, but in his people, amongst his people, individually, and as a church. No longer a physical one, but a spiritual one. And that's been happening since Christ. Stones, Jewish stones, Gentile stones, all built up into the temple of God. And so that's what we see, verse 21. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now reflect on that. Each time we gather as the people of God, God dwells with us. God is with us. We are described as the temple of God, the dwelling place of God. I mean, it, it makes becoming the church or coming to church, becoming the church, so far more significant than we might even imagine. Yeah, going to church each week is not like going to work or going to study or, or, or going shopping. It is a spiritual thing. It is a spiritual matter because God is with us. It, it should make us see how wrong it is when we think about our church attendance so flippantly because the gathering people of God is the temple of God. And so we cannot be flippant about our gathering each week. And so this is the church God unites by the blood of Christ for the peace of mankind to be the people of God. And God is saying, you are sacred, you are precious to me. Now the church God unites is also the church God sends. There's a mission for us. There's a task for us, for there are more who need to hear. There are more who needs to be added. There are more stones to be built into the temple of God. And that's what Paul the Apostle now shares of his God-given mission, a mission he first received and a mission that now flows onto us, the church today. And it is to make known to the world, the world that was alienated from God, the riches that is for them in Christ, and so to draw them into Christ. And that was how Christianity spread in the first place. It started off not as a Western religion. It came from the Jews to the Gentiles and then to the ends of the world. I mean, who would have known that that was God's design? Who would have known that that was God's purpose, that us today can belong to God? Who could have worked that out? No one. It was a mystery, a mystery hidden in ages past. And that's what Paul speaks of now. He speaks of this design of the church by God as a mystery. Look at chapter 3, verse 3 now. He describes it as this mystery made known to me by revelation. And then verse 4, it's the mystery of Christ. And then verse 5, it was not made known to many in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit. And then verse 6, this mystery is through the gospel. The Gentiles, 
that through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promises of Christ Jesus. You see, this was a mystery, hidden, but now revealed that we might belong to God, people of God as one family. And in verse 8, the apostle said, Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And that's what Paul did. The church God unites is the church God sends. And so Paul went throughout the Mediterranean, planting churches, bringing the gospel to bear on the lives of the people. Planted churches in Greece, in modern-day Turkey, in Rome. Thomas, he went to Syria, even to India. Andrew went as far as modern-day Russia. Philip to Africa. Matthew to Persia and Ethiopia. Bartholomew went to Armenia and southern Arabia. James to Syria and John to Ephesus and Patmos. Now, why did they do that, these apostles? Well, because the church God unites is also the church God sends to draw people in, more and more people in to Christ. It was God's hidden design right from the very beginning. But now it is made known to us. Look at verses 10 to 12. His intent was that now, this is God's intent, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. You see, that was God's design. His intention was that we might gather even today. So different. Once alienated, once far from God, but gathered to get today as his people in one family with one father and together with confidence. It's the reason why we can pray to God in the first place. It's why we would sing to God. It's, it's how we can listen to God. It was by God's design. It's the only reason that makes sense of why anyone would do any type of missionary work. It was for this reason, to bring people in. I mean, you think about what missionaries do. Why would anyone choose to do it? Often our missionaries there are those who come from quite comfortable, wealthy nations and they go to nations that are difficult, uncomfortable, even dangerous at times. Even during the time of colonisation, the British Empire, the different kingdoms of the world, when they went about their conquest, though many things that did happen during colonisation cannot be justified, but because it did happen, the gospel did spread. And that's why we have the gospel here today. The gospel did spread and they did do a lot of good. Robert Woodbury, a sociologist, he spent decades researching what missionaries did in the past and how that affected nations today. And he came to this conclusion. He said, areas where Protestant missionaries... And so not just any missionaries, but Protestant ones who were out to convert people. Areas where Protestant missionaries had a significant presence in the past are on average more economically developed today, 
with comparatively better health, lower infant mortality, lower corruption, greater literacy, higher educational attainment, especially for women, and more robust membership in non-governmental associations. And so the work of missionaries did a lot of social good. But apart from the social good, the missionaries sought to achieve what Paul sought to achieve in this passage, to preach the unsearchable riches that is available for all in Christ and to draw people into Christ. And so in the 1700s, you had William Carey, who went to India. In the 1840s, you had David Livingstone, who went to Africa. In the 1850s, you had Hudson Taylor, who went to China. And then we consider our own mission partners we support as a church. You've got the Campbells in West Asia. Why would they go there? Syl Ruddle, we heard from her the other week. She went to West Africa. Why would she go there? Or the Shorts, we'll hear next week. They have gone to the Fulani people in Africa. Why? When it's so much more comfortable to stay in Australia. Well, it was because they are to preach the unsearchable riches that is in Christ and to bring people into Christ. But of course, those who are far from Christ, those who are alienated, are not just those who are overseas. But they are all around us. Not all of us will become missionaries like that going overseas, but we are all to be, in one sense, missionaries in our own context. Because the task remains the same for us, for we are also the church God sends. It is the task for all of us, to our friends. Our neighbours, not overseas, but just our neighbours. I'm still working on my hairdresser. They are all far from Christ, alienated from God, and they need to know this as well. The church God unites is the church God sends, and that is our task. You see, it's the divine purpose of God. It's the design of God that God would unite all as one under Christ, under God. But don't you think it's sad when we look around the world today and throughout human history, you look around and you, you continue to see so much division. It's just so horrible, isn't it? Division here, division there. So horrible, so ugly. Not so much just Jew and Gentile, but within Gentiles, amongst Gentiles. Division because of colour or caste or status or tribe, or race. I mean, racism itself is a, it's a very ugly thing. I remember growing up in, in a school over the western suburbs, a Catholic school in, in fact, and it's, uh, it was a different generation. Back then, Asians like myself, a small, small minority. In my school growing up, uh, there were perhaps only a small handful of Asians, and many of us were refugees. And so I remember growing up in about year two, year three, uh, starting at this school. Hard to imagine, but back then I was not as tall as I am now, not as sort of like toned as I am now. Back then I was skinny, short, scrawny, easy to be picked on, very easy. And so I remember that did happen many times. And, and I was called names because people knew I, I did not belong to Australia. That's what they claimed anyway. But I had this wonderful friend, uh, a big friend. He was twice as big as anyone else in the class. 
we might call him big bone or just fat, but he was big. <laughs> and each time, he was a good friend, each time he would see that I get picked on, he would get in between us. He'll, he'll stop whoever's doing the bullying and say, stop, I'm English, so you better stop. So that was, he, he was my good friend. But you see, that continues to happen in the world. But in the church, it doesn't. Because the church is the place where there is diversity, but yet unity. For it is the church God unites. It was in fact Billy Graham who, who was so clear in his theology and in his practice, who taught that this must not be so. Division in the world, division in the church. He was that great evangelist. And during the 50s in the American South, there was much segregation between the blacks and the whites. They were segregated in all spheres of society, on the bus. And even at his rallies, at his evangelistic rallies, they wanted to segregate, separate the whites from the blacks. Whites at the front, blacks at the back, and roped off. Well, Billy Graham, he said he would have none of it. This cannot be so. He said, he said this, he said, Christianity is not a white man's religion, and don't let anybody tell you that it's white or black. Christ belongs to all people. He belongs to the whole world. He made it clear the church is to be a united place, so diverse in the members, in its people, but one. And even during the Cold War, there was the, the big iron curtain you could not get behind that to the Soviet Union. But he got behind it and it didn't stop him proclaiming Christ. During the Cold War, Americans, they really hated the communists, just like many others hated the communists. But Billy, he did not look upon them as communists, but as human beings in need of the forgiveness of Christ. And this was what he said. Although cultures are different in all different parts of the world, the human heart is the same. The human heart needs forgiveness. The human heart needs forgiveness. All people need Jesus, who unites all people as one, under him as head, in the family of God. And that's why I really love our church. It's one of the reasons why I grew up in a, in a Chinese-speaking church, and there are places for ethnic churches. There, there are important places for ethnic churches to reach those migrants. Uh, but one of the decisions that Yvonne and myself made during Bible college was that we wanted to belong to a church that reflected a bit of heaven, where it is multicultural and different and diverse, not just one demographic, but young to old and everyone in between from all cultures. And that's one of the wonderful things I love about our church. You see, Christ belongs to the whole world. And we get to see a glimpse of that every single week at our church. Reflect on that. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that glorious? You see, we're not just friends united. It goes deeper. It runs deeper. Brothers and sisters in Christ, where in your week can you say that? It is only amongst the people of God. We're not just family. We don't use that word casually, but we are the family belonging to God as Father. You see, what we have each week might be just a small, pale reflection, but is nonetheless a foretaste of heaven.
as we meet around God under Christ, people from all different backgrounds, it is a small foretaste of heaven. That is what we get to experience each week. And that is what is so wonderful. It is a spiritual reality that we are a part of. And one day, the Apostle John in his vision, in Revelation, it will become a reality. Remember what John said? He said, I looked and saw a multitude too large to count from every nation and tribe and people and tongue standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Just picture that. A sea of people that goes on and on and on forever. People from all sorts of different backgrounds around the throne and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See, one humanity, one family, one saviour, one God, and standing in that sea of people will be you. You and you. Isn't it glorious? Oh, how we long for that day when we stand there around the throne. And so, what do you think that means for us as God's church today? The church God unites is also the church God sends but how many of us live like that recognize that hold to that how many of us as we meet and gather as the people of God recognize that this is the spiritual reality that we are part of the family of God how many of us recognize that we must act like one family looking beyond race and age and culture and background. And so let me ask you a few questions. How many of you, how many of us in our church, which is so diverse, so wonderful, but we only speak and care and love for those who are like us, just like me? Uh, we, don't, we don't cross the barrier where it feels a bit too uncomfortable to those who are older or younger or just different. We act like the barrier still exists. That must not be. That cannot be because we are one family. We are one family. But I do see wonderful foretastes of heaven amongst us. It's why I love seeing when us who are younger speak to those who are older and those who are older speaking to, to those who are middle-aged, and those who are middle-aged speaking to the little ones, and we're doing life together like the family of God should be. I see that, but do you think we should have more of that? I think so. Even after our service, as we gather and meet, are we hanging around those who are like us, or those who are different, working hard because we are the one family? What I also love seeing is when we have Older ones, older men, older women, mentoring, discipling, caring for younger men, younger women. And I see that sometimes around here, before the service, during the week, and it is wonderful. I love seeing that. It reflects that we belong to one family, caring, loving, living like one family. But do you think we should see more of that? I think so. And what I also love seeing is when as one family we can have robust discussions, robust debates, 
wanting to nut out what God is teaching us, wanting to decide together what God would do with us as a church, robust discussions where there are differences. And that is okay because we remain united. The family of God must always be united, not allowing bitterness to, to be harboured, allowing resentment to grow or hatred. It cannot be amongst the people of God. We are different. We can have good discussions, good debate, but we must remain united because we are the one family. I love it when I see it, though I think we can have more of that as well. And what I also love seeing is the heart of many of our members here. The heart for the loss, knowing that we are the church God has united, and so we are the church that God has sent. And a heart that aches for the lost. The other week I was speaking to one of our sisters in our church and, and she got teary just reflecting on those in her family who are still alienated and far away. I mean, that's the heart we must have for those who are lost, those who are far away, without God, without hope, without a future. It should ache our hearts. And I see that amongst many of us. But I think we can have more of that as well. You see, the church God unites is the church God sends. And what I would love for our church to have that great burden that, that rests on our hearts, the great burden that, that weighed the great men and women before us. Now, D.L. Moody, before Billy Graham, who was the great evangelist of last century, the century before the great evangelist was D.L. Moody. He was approached one time by a man who wanted to know, what's the secret of all your successes? How can you bring so many to faith in Christ? How could you preach in a way that would bring life to the dead and bring them and incorporate them into Christ? And so this man asked Moody, and Moody said to this man, well, go to the hotel window and look out and ask him, what do you see? Now the man answered the first time. He said, I, I, I see a crowd of people. And then Moody requested him, well, go and have another look outside the window. What do you see? Now this man this time said, well, I see now a crowd of people, but men, women, and children. Now Moody asked him once again, the third time, go out, look outside the window. What do you see? Now the man at this point, who was getting a bit frustrated, not knowing what Moody wanted him to see. The great evangelist, he then came to the window. And with watery eyes, he looked out and he said, I see people who are far away. People who are headed to hell without Jesus. Until you see people like that, you will not lead them to Christ. I mean, isn't that wonderful? The church got unites is the church God sends. It is that burden that must weigh on our heart as the people of God. But yet at the same time rejoicing, longing for the day when we will all be gathered with the millions and millions around the throne of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your great mercy that though we were once alienated, far away, without God, without hope, without the promises for your people, 
but in Christ you have brought us near by his body and blood shed for us. And so we thank you, Lord, that we are one people, one humanity, one family, under Christ as Lord and under you, our Father. And we thank you, Lord, for your spirit who continues to work in us, joining us, connecting us, growing us, making us more and more like your son, Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Uh, we had lots and lots of questions, uh, more than we could handle, but we've chosen some. Uh, Ben's going to bring them on the screen uh, for us. The first question is this, a question about uh, the verses, particularly, particularly verse 15, uh, where it speaks of Jesus in his flesh abolishing the law. And so the question is, does Jesus abolish the law? Uh, and is this consistent with other passages? Yep, excellent question. So in two ways we are to understand this. So, so in Matthew 5, Jesus speaks about him coming to fulfill all the requirements of the law, which in a sense, by fulfilling all the requirements of the law, he abolished the hold of the law on anyone to receive or get salvation. So he abolished it in a sense that you cannot obey the law by, to be saved because he did it for us. So he abolished the way of being saved by the law. But what Jesus also th did was he, in a sense, abolished all the ceremonial laws because they were all fulfilled in him. And that is why we no longer need to offer sacrifices. That is why the food laws no longer hold for us because he made it all clean. And so he abolished it in that way as well. So, so in two ways. Abolished it in a sense you can no longer or need to obey the law for salvation because that's impossible. But he fulfilled them all as well. Uh, our next question uh, is, because Christ has unified us all, no matter the background, uh, is it wrong, you touched on this, but mm. is it wrong or unbiblical to have churches that are culture or race specific? Mm. So this uh, speaks of the homogenous uh, principle, which is the idea that like attracts like. And the reality is that all churches will attract those who are like them in some way. And so there is always going to be some similarity within all churches. And so if this question is about ethnic churches, I grew up in a Chinese church, there are uh, Egyptian churches, there are all sort of, sorts of ethnic churches. I think there's a place for them because they are trying to bring the gospel to bear to those who speak their language. It's in a sense what missionaries do. We go over to another country, learn their language and try to reach them. And so there is a place because it's bringing people into the kingdom of God. But what I have uh, found is that in a country like Australia, it works in the first generation, second generation a bit, but by the third generation, everyone wants to meet in a church like this where English is our first language. But there is a place for it. There is a place for it. I don't think it's unbiblical because people are being saved. There is a place for it. Personally, I like what we have here in that it's a small foretaste of heaven. Is the place for it particularly to do with language? Is that, is that the place or is it more than that? Um, language is certainly the, the key, key um, factor because you want people to understand the gospel and they understand it best in their own language, which is why missionaries, where missionaries learn the local language so that they can proclaim the gospel in the local language. Language is the big factor. Though a lot of ethnic churches, they retain some of their own culture, which is not bad in and of itself, but sometimes culture can override the core of the gospel. Yeah. Next question. 
uh, which was asked in a few different ways by a few different people, if church uh, was united by God, uh, what are we to make of so many different denominations and even divisions within denominations? Uh, what should our thinking uh, be and our attitude towards denominational differences? Denominations show us that we are saved by grace. We're not perfect. No one is perfect. No denomination is perfect. And even though there are denominations, at our very core, we hold to the gospel which remains the same. The gospel that Jesus is Lord and Savior who died for us and was raised back to life. That is the same in all Protestant denominations. Where denominations differ are on the second order issues, and that is okay because uh, Romans 14 allows for differences on second order issues. We live with each other in peace, but I would call a Baptist brother a brother, and that is okay because our core belief in Christ is the same. Will there be denominations in the new creation? Well, in, well, the reality is that even though there are denominations today, it is still just the one church, and that's why when we confess the creed, we confess the Holy Catholic Church. It is the one invisible church we all belong to regardless of denomination. So you certainly will not see the, the corner for Presbyterians with their blue carpets in heaven. There will be just the, the sea of people, all one in Christ. We had one last question that missed the cut in terms of the PowerPoint, but it's such an important one, so it's not going to come up, okay. but I'll ask it. With all this talk of unity hmm. and being uh, saved to be united, do you have to go to church to be a Christian was hmm. the question that came in. That's an excellent question. What's... What's worth knowing about even the idea of church is that to belong to the church means you need to gather with the people of God. And so those who say, well, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian, well, the reality is that you certainly won't last long as a Christian if you're going out alone. So being a Christian means we're in a team sport. It's like playing soccer or netball rather than tennis, where you can go out solo. We were not made to live solo lives as Christians. And so, in a sense, it is wrong to think that you don't need to go to church to be a Christian. You, you in a sense, need to if you want to grow as a Christian and continue as a Christian. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, John. Our final song. All creatures of our God and King.